Okay, thank you. And why is that significant? Peter had to uh, go outside of what he thought was uh, the, the norm and bring the green gospel to the Gentiles. Okay, there you go. So he is the first Gentile convert, and that was a really big obstacle for a Jewish person like Peter to go talk to him and actually go in his home. And so how did God overcome Peter's resistance to that idea? vision on the rooftop, and um, the vision is not just about food is clean, but what is, what's the main message Peter finally understands about the vision? That, that no person should be right, considered unclean. Right, right. So Jews thought of Gentiles, and Gentiles just simply anybody who's not a Jew. So any non-ethnically Jewish person is unclean. They're contaminated, and I will be contaminated if I am in too close association with them. So there's these big lines of separation, um, social distancing uh, before it was popular uh, between Jews and Gentiles, and so God overcomes that with a vision uh, for Peter. What does it mean that God shows no partiality? No people group is excluded from salvation. Okay, good. So the kinds of things that matter to people as far as rich, poor, Jewish, Gentile, ethnicity, all those things don't matter to God. Um, all are welcome. What doesn't it mean that God shows no partiality? That he ignores sin. Okay, that would be a big thing, right? That everybody gets saved. Or that everybody is saved. That God treats everybody the same. So Good. So how did Peter know that Cornelius and his friends had come to Christ? while he was still speaking. The Holy Spirit. That one right, right. And then how did he connect the dots? If that happened to them, then... It says they were speaking in tongues and extolling God. Right, right. But the same, over in 15... At the Council of Jerusalem, he'll explain God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. So this Holy Spirit descending on Gentiles, just like he did on the Jews on Pentecost, or 
Samaritans in Acts chapter 8 was this confirmation God had worked in their hearts. They are now believers, just like Jewish believers, cleansed by faith. So we can't treat them differently or see them differently. They're one of us. We're all in the same family now. Does that make sense? So any comments or questions on Acts chapter 10? Okay, well, let's go into chapter 11. Would somebody please read the first three verses? So what response might we have expected to hear a bunch of Gentiles in Joppa came to Christ? Hooray. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't you think you'd rejoice that that's a big deal? All the way back in Genesis 12.3, God said, In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And now that promise is getting fulfilled, that people outside the Jewish ethnic group are now included in God's people. So there should have been rejoicing, but how do they react and why? They're still clinging to the Jewish law that they know and were raised in and seeing that as unclean, so that old habits die hard. Okay, good, good. Now they uh, took issue or criticized them and the basic idea is, like, what? <laughs> you went into a Gentile house? How could you? you know, they were shocked and offended and upset that anybody would do such a thing. And can you think of anybody else who was criticized for eating with the wrong kind of people? There you go. <laughs> so it's like, deja vu, we've been here before. Remember the Gospel of Luke? He was constantly getting criticized. He goes into... People's houses like Zacchaeus, he's a, he's a sinner, and he hangs out with the prostitutes and sinners, and he's, they're just always on him for that. So as you said, Kyle, old habits die high. That's just deeply ingrained in a Jewish person's mind. Gentiles are unclean, and that's not going to change. So I hear that they come to Christ. I can't get excited about that because we all know Gentiles are unclean. So Peter's going to try to overcome that. Um, 4 through 12, would anybody please read 4 through 12? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheep descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common <coughs> has ever entered by mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. 
These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. Okay, thank you. So any comments or questions on Peter retelling the story we saw last week in Acts 10? Basically rehashes it. Um, so let's pick up 13 to 17. Would somebody please read 13 to 17? And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in the house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Okay, thank you. So any questions on Peter's conclusion about them receiving the same gift we received when we believed? Okay. So then let's read what happens. Verse 18. When they heard this, they had no further objections. They praised God, saying, So then God has even granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. Okay, thank you. So how are the people that originally were criticizing responding now? Okay, so the complaining is done, and the chirping is done, and they're glorifying God. And why are they glorifying God? Now they're praising him for bringing repentance unto life for the Gentiles. Okay, good. So some of you have the word granted in that granted repentance. What does the word granted mean? Gift. Gift. Um, is it a free gift or a gift that has strings attached? Free. I think it's free. It's free, yes. There's a loan and a grant from college, and they're very different things. <laughs> exactly. So if you've thought about uh, college for your kids or had to go through college with your kids or even your own memory, there's a big difference between work study and loans and then grants. And everyone's grants because it's free money. You don't have to pay back. It just, here's money. So, granted means give as a gift. So, where else have we seen that repentance is a gift? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. True, and actually, that's, we're going to talk about that this morning, is faith as a gift. In terms of specifically saying repentance is a gift that's granted by God. Okay. So, let's go... Yeah, so yeah. So back in Acts 5, you might remember we saw Acts 5:31. Would somebody read Acts 5:31? God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. Okay, and some versions have grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And then, could somebody also read 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26? 2 Timothy chapter 2, 
verse 25 and 26. turn from sin and darkness to God and light. Um, so here's something I just would like to point out as an observation. Go back in Acts 11 and let's look at the phrases and the conclusion and just make a comment about that. So in verse 1 it says they heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. Okay. And then in verse 17, it talks about God gave them the same gift, the Holy Spirit. And also talks about believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So, so our responses we've seen so far. And then their conclusion hearing, they received the word, they believed in Christ, they received the Spirit was, so God must have granted them Repentance. So how did they get there when repentance wasn't specifically mentioned as one of the responses? I'm glad you're wondering the same question. So here's a little exercise. Um, help me come up with some synonymous expressions for getting married. So John and Mary... Got hitched. Oh, I forgot about got hitched. Okay. What else? Tied the knot. Very good. What was that, Ruth? Never ever heard that one. I think that's a Pennsylvania Dutch. I'm even Pennsylvania Dutch and I've never heard that one. But okay. Any other phrases that tell us? <laughs> Do we need to talk, guys? <laughs> okay. What else? They were wedded. Wedded, sure. Anything else? Tied the knot. Yep, is has been done. But. So here's a few others, just in case you're stuck. United in holy matrimony, kind of a formal way to say it. They exchanged vows. They exchanged rings. They said, I do. They were pronounced man and wife. And one that you don't hear very often, but exchanged or celebrated nuptials. Which is, well, has a nice ring to it. <laughs> so, if you say... Nice ring to it. Oh, do do. Sorry, I'm not, well, I'm not even sharp enough to know I did it. So. so, if you say one of those phrases, you could say all those others happen too, right? Hopefully, not the ball and chain part, but all the other ones. So, like, if if they said "I do," you know they also exchanged vows. If they were wedded, you know they exchanged rings. And so you don't have to say all those phrases every time to communicate that cluster of events or cluster of expressions 
for what took place on their wedding day. And in a similar way, the New Testament uses a number of expressions for becoming a Christian. This, and there's a cluster of events that took place very close together in the New Testament, like receiving the Word, believing in Christ, repenting, being baptized, receiving the Holy Spirit. Those are all just, especially in Acts, you just see those used interchangeably. And so, to hear, oh, the Gentiles received the Word, they believed in Christ, received the Spirit, oh, they must have been granted repentance. Because those always go together. And they could have said, the Gentiles repented and they um, were baptized with They said, oh, they must have believed in Christ. I mean, it's just very interchangeable how those phrases are used in the New Testament. Does that make sense? Yeah, I thought it was interesting when you were describing the wedding ones, all those different phases of the <coughs> ceremony were used to, that it just is one thing. To say I do is one small part of the wedding. But right. If you said that to somebody, they would know a wedding. Yeah, yeah. There's, it's just so closely associated with that event. And so in the New Testament, th- these concepts are so closely associated with coming to Christ that you can use any one of them and people will know, oh, all those other pieces happen too. that make sense? Good. All right. Let's keep reading then. Um, Luke is going to go back to where he was in 8... He kind of did this diversion of the conversion of Saul and then the conversion of Cornelius. And now he's going to go back to uh, this group of believers um, that he talked about in chapter 8. So would somebody please read 19 through 21. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Okay, thank you. That's all we need for now anyway. So who are these people that were scattered? Do you remember? All right, except whom? Who isn't scattered? The apostles. The apostles, remember? Great persecution resulting in great scattering, resulting in great spreading. So they're non-apostles, the non-professionals. They're not the professional clergy of the day. They're ordinary, quote-unquote, lay people that got sent out from Jerusalem because the Great Commission was stalled temporarily where it was supposed to be Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the rest of the world and it's just still in Jerusalem if not months, if not maybe two years after the Great Commission. So it's like God sovereignly used persecution to get the word out and spreading and so these same people now are still spreading. So I don't know if you need to use your Bible maps in the back. Mine are glued together so I can't look anymore. But um, where is um, let's go back here? Where's Phoenicia? Anybody know? Coastal. Yeah, so it's up the coast. So Israel's on the coast. You keep going north, and you're up into there. Where's Cyprus? 
It is an island. It's in the island of Mediterranean, 100 miles off the coast. So you have to get on a sailboat, sail 100 miles to get there to spread the gospel because you moved from Jerusalem. But you made this effort to go across the sea to get to Cyprus. And then where's Antioch? Anybody know? Even further north than Phoenicia. Yeah, it's up in northern Syria. So it's spreading a lot um, in all directions. And um, who started going to the Greeks? <coughs> the Cyrene. People from Cyprus and Cyrene. Right. So where's Cyrene? Isn't that another island? Not technically. Okay, we've met somebody from Cyrene before in the Gospels. Simon, right, but where, where's he from? Simon. <laughs> <laughs> You're two for two, Kyle. He's called Cyrene. So where is Cyrene? Yeah, it's North Africa. So you see how it's spreading? We've already got the eunuch down in Ethiopia spreading the gospel after he's come to Christ. But now we're up in northern Africa, too. There's believers up there spreading the word to, if you're Greek, what ethnicity aren't you? (laughs) Boom! (laughs) So again, it's spreading past this little, I can only spread the gospel in Jerusalem to my fellow Jewish people. Now it's, I'm going all over the Middle East and the Mediterranean, and now I'm including Gentile folks that I always thought were unclean, now that gospel is crossing that barrier and people are coming to Christ. So, so, did we read, did you read 21? No. I'm sorry, I cut you off too soon. Would somebody please read 21? Maybe Gary would give you a chance to finish it. <laughs> and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Okay, so here's more expressions. Believing, turning, and why were there people believing and turning? Right. So, I've been in Chronicles in my quiet time, so maybe you wouldn't have thought of Chronicles as a similar event. But go to Second Chronicles 30. Second Chronicles chapter 30. And verse 1 just sets the stage, so somebody read 1 and then 6 through 9, please, of Second Chronicles 30. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah, wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh, and they, that they should come to the house of the Lord of Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. So couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes, as the king had commanded, saying, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. 
Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them a desolation as you see. Do not now be stiff-necked be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. Okay, so has BSF gotten as far as this yet? Not yet. Not yet. But anyway, the setting is, of course, divided kingdom, right? There's Judah, and then there's Israel, the northern kingdoms. They've been divided for hundreds of years now. And it's been many, many years since anybody's observed the Passover. How often was a good Jewish person supposed to celebrate the Passover? Every year. And it had been neglected for years. I don't remember the exact total, but it's a while. I think, I want to say 70, but... Somebody can dig that up. So a long time since this major feast, remembering God delivering his people out of slavery into Egypt and making them his own people. Years and years and years. Be like not having the Lord's Supper for years and years and years. And going, hey, we really should do that again. <laughs> and inviting, again, so it's not just Judah, because Hezekiah is in Judah, but let's invite all of Israel even though we've been enemies and have had several civil wars over the years, let's have them come too, and let's remember the Lord's work in delivering us out of slavery in Egypt, just like he said we should every year. So he sends out these messengers, and there's these pleas to return, come, God will bless, God will restore, come, right? So let's see how that invitation was responded to. Would somebody read 10 through 12? Twelve couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun, but they left them to scorn and mock them. However, some men of Asher, of Manasseh, and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. <coughs> so the most common response was mocking and laughing. What? Go to Jerusalem to do the Passover? Forget it. That was the most common response. But some people... Nevertheless, in spite of that being the concert, some humbled themselves and came. And then verse 12 says the hand of God was also, which means he was with the hand of the Lord, was also on the people that humbled themselves, also on Judah to give, give them one heart to do what the king commanded. So do you see? The hand of the Lord is on them giving them a heart, giving them humbling so that they want to respond willingly to go to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover. Uh, and I think that's the imagery Luke is talking about is 
The hand of the Lord was on them, and that's why people were believing in terms of the Lord. It's God is working. God is working in hearts and bringing them to faith. It wasn't just, they were smart enough to figure it out. They, God was working. So any comments or questions on that? All right, well, let's pick it up back in Acts 11. Would somebody please read 22 through 26? The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and of faith great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Okay, thank you. So, they hear about what's going on up in Antioch. Anybody know how far Antioch is from Jerusalem? 300 miles. So think here to Dubuque. Let's send Barnabas over there to check it out. Just like they were checking out what was happening in um, these, in Samaria and other. They, they want to go see for themselves what's going on. And what does Barnabas see when he gets there? Yeah. So what would he have seen? How do you see... The grace of God. Fruit of the Spirit. Okay, I think that would be a, a very good attempt. I mean, it doesn't tell us specifically what he saw, but it wasn't like there was a G on their foreheads, like G for grace. So there was something about these believers, and as he interacts with them and talks with them, through the Spirit is evidence. This evidence of a changed life is there. There's... There's new attitudes, new perspectives, new everything. Remember, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things, old things have passed away, new things have come. Barnabas could see that in these believers in Antioch. So he saw the grace of God, even though grace is invisible, technically. right? So, how does he respond? If he was glad, does that mean he was blessed by it? Yeah, I think it would be, Right? And how else does he respond besides being glad or rejoicing in God's grace in these believers? He exhorted them and exhorted them to remain faithful, so they must have seen faithfulness in them okay. to exhort them to continue to. Right, right. Good point. Good. And then what does he do after that? Does he just say, hey, glad to see everything's going well? Hang in there. What does he do next? He went out to find Saul. Goes get Saul, brings him back, and then what do both of them do for how long? Yeah. So, I mean, depending on what stuff you read, it's like one of the problems in evangelism, especially public kind of evangelism, like a Billy Graham crusade or outreach events, is okay. There's some kind of profession of faith, but then there's often little or no follow-up. How do you grow as a Christian? If this is real, what do you do now? 
You know, how do you develop this relationship you've started? How do you read the Bible? How do you pray? How do you talk to others about Christ? How do you worship? You know, they need follow-up. You know, you don't just birth a baby and it's like, okay, I brought a baby into the world. It's like, you're going to take care of that baby and feed him or her and nurture and take care of them, provide for them. And so Paul and Barnabas both commit for a whole year to nurture these newborn Christians along in the faith. Um, Again, part of the Great Commission is not just make disciples, but teach them to observe all I commanded. That takes time. That takes teaching. And they took that seriously. So they're doing that with these believers. And it was in Antioch that disciples picked up a nickname. So they didn't come up with this themselves. People called them this. So what's the nickname? Christian. Christian. Little Christ. Little Christ. Okay. Um, So a Susidian is someone who's related to Susidian in some way. A Herodian in the Bible is someone who's identified with the party of Herod. So a Christian is someone who's identified with or related to Christ and also seems to have the flavor of little Christ. Like you're a walking, talking replica of Christ. So do you remember back in Luke 640 what Jesus said about disciples? A disciple, when he is fully trained, when he's fully discipled, a disciple when he's fully discipled will be like his master. So over time, spent with Jesus, you become more like Jesus. That's the goal. Sanctification, right? To be conformed to his image. We'd be more and more like Christ. So these new believers are walking like Christ, talking like Christ, living like Christ, loving like Christ, Christ-like attitudes, Christ-like everything. And unbelievers around them are nicknamed, oh, you guys are just a bunch of little Christs. Which is quite a compliment. (laughs) But I think it's significant that to notice the order. What's a disciple? Right, right. A follower, devoted follower who's becoming like their master. So the Great Commission is go make followers. So let me just... I borrowed some phrases from this. Okay. The people that got nicknamed Christian were those who heard the word and the preaching of the Lord Jesus... This is all coming from Acts 11. Believe the message, turn to the Lord through his power, demonstrated visible evidence of God's transforming grace in their lives, were committed to be instructed in the truth, were devoted followers as Christ's disciples, and whose very lives seem to proclaim Christ as the most important person in my life. Those are the people that got nicknamed Christians. So how is that different than the way Christian and disciple are sometimes used now? is thought of as somebody that has some sort of association with church. Okay. Disciple is considered varsity. Okay, good. Good. Um, I didn't get my act together enough to have a, I was going to have a whiteboard with a Venn diagram to, for all you math teachers <laughs> in the crowd. But I still remember what they are. So so the first, just do it in your mind. Think of a circle 
And that circle is Christians. Okay? So the way it's often used as Christians is anybody who's made some kind of response to Christ or some kind of <coughs> belief in Christ, some kind of association with the church. It's very vague, right? Lots of definitions of Christian out there. So that whole circle is Christian, and then we would draw a little subset, the people that are really serious and following Christ and obedient and you know committed, those are disciples. It's a subset of Christians. But Acts 11 is saying, start with the circle of disciples, fully devoted followers, serious commitment to Christ, becoming like Christ, and then you could just put slash Christians. That's the group. So you see how different it is from how American, even Christianity uses those two terms. We've made this sort of two-tier Christianity of varsity, you know, you get extra rewards, you know, it's like flying first class, but if you just want to get to heaven, tourist class will get you there too, you know, and it's a lot less commitment, it's a lot less cost, it's a lot easier, but hey, you're all on the plane, what difference does it make? And the Bible's saying, no, <laughs> that plane is called disciple slash Christian, it's people committed to Christ, and that's the way we should use the words, not two separate groups. Does that make sense? So, guess, okay, quiz. How many times is the term Christian used in the Bible? Three, all together. Twice in Acts. We just saw the first one. The second one is Agrippa saying, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Uh, and then First Peter, we saw a few weeks ago, if anyone suffers as a Christian. Only times the word Christian is used in the whole Bible. How often is the word disciple used? It's dozens. It's dozens. So that's the main term for people who believe in Christ, follow Christ. Christian is just was a nickname uh, that unbelievers are using, and then Peter just borrowed it and said, okay, you're going to suffer as a Christian, you're going to suffer as a Christ, glorify God in that name, even though it's not meant as a compliment as such, it's just sort of a dig. It's like Baptist is a nickname, we didn't start out calling ourselves Baptist, it was a nickname from other people, and it stuck, <laughs> but it wasn't meant as a compliment, um, as originally used. So, any comments or questions on Christian, disciple, how those two terms are used in the Bible and how they're used now. Okay. Well, let's finish up the chapter then. Would somebody please read 27 to 30? During this time, some of the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, one of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. <coughs> this happened during the reign of Claudius. This, the disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Okay, thank you. So, what need comes up among the Jewish believers?
So there's a famine coming, there's going to be a food shortage, and these Gentiles in Antioch say, we really need to help our Jewish brothers in Judea. And so they collect the money and send it through Saul and Barnabas. Which is, again, kind of cool, isn't it? Here's these brand new believers. They're a whole different ethnic group, total different background, but they hear about the family of God has a need over in Israel, and so we should do something about that. Let's pool our resources and send it to them through Saul and Barnabas. So, just, again, not, um, just an indicator of that grace. Remember, Barnabas could see grace, and here's grace. We'll see that also in 2 Corinthians 8. Um, Paul will say um, how the grace of God was given to the Macedonians, that even in their um, extreme poverty, they uh, gave with great generosity. And he attributes that to the grace of God on them, creating that generosity. So, again, that idea of grace, visible grace, shows itself in deeds of love toward the family of God. Any other comments or questions? Well, Lord willing, we will start chapter 12 next Sunday. So let's close in prayer. And Lane, would you close us in prayer, please? Sure. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we are in awe of your great mercy and grace. Um, and just to see your hand moving in these places in the Bible is a blessing to us, just as it was to Barnabas and Paul. And so, God, we just ask that you would um, use your word to affect our hearts, cause us to worship in a way that brings honor and glory to your name. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.